Welcome to All Places Together. Here we believe that our stories are connected to one another and rooted in God's radical love for diverse creation. Wherever you are, whoever you are, however you are, take a deep breath. Here's a story for you, a story called Aleph to Tav, an introduction to Hebrew poetry. Today, we launch into our first series of our second year of All Places Together. This is a series that I've been thinking about for a while, and the timing just feels right for now. So y'all, it's time to dig in and explore the third part of the core affirmation of All Places Together, God loves you however you are. Now, if you're a regular listener, you may remember that we did a one-off episode about this last October. If you haven't listened to it yet, I encourage you to do so. It's episode 25. There, I really focused on the diverse experiences of Jesus's life and how God was with Jesus in all of the different ways that he was, that Jesus was, and how God is with us however we are, because Jesus was in those places as well. This summer, we're going to come at it from a slightly different angle and from a different part of the Bible. Each week, we'll be joined by a different guest as they share their stories about God has been with them, however they are, and to see how they see some of their story in the Bible, too. Today's guest is going to help us understand a particular type of biblical writing that we'll be focused on and then begin our exploration of how we see God with God's people, including us, in these holy words. So to kick it all off, I'm super excited to welcome the Reverend Emily Wiles to All Places Together. Emily uses pronouns like she and her. Emily currently serves as a program manager for the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America churchwide offices. She focuses on congregational vitality and initiatives, She also has a Master in Divinity from Luther Seminary and a Bachelor of Arts in Youth and Family Ministry from Augsburg University. Previous to serving in this capacity, Emily served congregations in Illinois and Indiana. In her free time, she loves bingeable TV shows, testing new recipes, and always has at least three books open at a time. Welcome to All Places Together, Emily. We're so happy you're here. Thank you. I am excited to walk this podcast with you. All right. So I do have to ask, what's at least one of these books that you have open right now? Right now, I have a collection of short stories by Turkish women authors, because one of my goals in life is to read as many women authors from around the world. Oh, I love that. Yeah, that's a noble goal. I may join you in that, too. I would love it. And then we can cross check notes. Ah, excellent. I do love a book club. As you, dear listener, may or may not know, there are lots of different types of writing in the Bible. So it's not just history, it's not just narratives, and it's not just a long list of laws of things that we have to do for God. And, well, there's a lot more to probably be said about the law in general, but we're not getting in that today. Today, what we're focusing on is biblical poetry, and in particular, Hebrew poetry. That is the poetry that we find in the Hebrew Testament, or as many people call it, the Old Testament. 
As we were prepping for this episode, Emily told me that there's actually only two biblical books that don't have any poetry in them. Which two are they again? Those are Leviticus and Esther. And so every other book has biblical poetry in it. Every other book has biblical poetry in it, whether we recognize it or not. All right. And I don't think I realized how common it was, despite, you know, reading the Bible pretty regularly. So how can someone who is reading the Bible tell if what they are reading is poetry? It can be kind of hard to understand in the English language. So I think the first thing to do is follow the formatting that translators have already done for us. Oftentimes when we open scripture, whether it's printed or in an app, Poetry is indented, uh, moved slightly to the right, and formatted fairly similarly to how we format it in the English language. So for instance, Psalm 1 is going to look very different than Numbers 1. And I think that's the first point to look for. Yeah, so as I'm like imagining a Bible app or like a paper Bible in my head, like the stuff that's narrative is is justified to take up the whole line and just flows in like a block of text. And yeah, like the Psalms have all of those little indents. So we have that visual cue. Yes. And our translators have done that work. Another fun fact is when the text was originally written, they didn't have the luxury of space. Mm. So it was words one right after another. And so there were other key indicators in the text for those who are reading the poetry on scrolls. Oh, that's really interesting. So there wouldn't necessarily be those same visual cues. They would maybe have to read it and then maybe go back and reread it again, like once they realized what they were encountering was poetry instead of instructions on how to build the ark or something. Exactly. Yeah. So I imagine for many of us, it has been a long time since we've studied poetry, like perhaps in an English class. I mean, I think for me, it's probably been like AP English in high school. Um, But I do, of course, remember that there are certain devices and characteristics that we see um, in poetry and English. And I bet like some of those are the same in Hebrew, But I'm sure that there's also like unique things about Hebrew poetry as well. You know, like every language is a little bit different and functions in a different way. So what are some of these common devices and characteristics of Hebrew poetry that people can keep an an eye out for? I think that's why it's really key to follow the translators work in how they format the text, because that's going to be the major thing to look for as English speakers and readers. And it's also because what makes for good Hebrew poetry is not good English writing. (laughs) Tell us more. (laughs) This is why I think a lot of us struggle with understanding Hebrew poetry. It comes from a different culture and context. And so we just are like, this is not good writing, but it is good Hebrew writing. So it's important to note that one, Hebrew does not have the same robust vocabulary as English. So repetition of words and thoughts is a key device used for good Hebrew poetry. Oh, that's so different from English where it's like 
we constantly want to try to use a same, a different word. I said that wrong the first time. We want to use a different word to like have variety or explain more things or not be repetitious. Yeah, so this is very different in Hebrew. And Hebrew uses a lot of synonyms. Okay. But they're really trying to get at repetitious of thought or ideas, right? Mm. So very simply, Hebrew poetry is often about rhyming ideas and structure rather than words. Like Hebrew poetry would never sound like Dr. Seuss's work. One fish, red fish, two fish, blue fish. That wasn't quite right, but yeah. Exactly. Um, So can I give you a couple examples? Oh, yeah. I love examples. Let's hear them. Okay, so one of my favorite psalms, Psalm 30, verse 11 and 12 say, You've turned my mourning into dancing. You have taken off my sackcloth and clothed me with joy. That's verse 11. So there's repetition and thought, right? They rhyme mourning with sackcloth because in that culture, one wore sackcloth when they were in mourning. And then it says, clothed me with joy. And then it talks about how they turn mourning into dancing. And then they rhyme dancing with clothed me with joy, right? Because what is dancing but like joy expressed? I love that. Right? So there's repetitious of repetition of thought. And then the next verse, so that my soul may praise you and not be silent. Oh, Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. Right. My soul praises God and not be silent rhymes with I give thanks to you forever. Right. Both of these verses repeat thoughts or ideas. Right. I know in English sometimes I just want a writer to speed along and strike me with a nugget of wisdom. But for Hebrew poets, the repetition strengthens their purpose. The poet is testifying to the transformation God has given them and in a way invites us as readers to join them. Because frankly, who doesn't want to dance? I know. I love dancing. This is, I really like that verse as well. And I feel like even that verse is played out in other psalms in, slight, in a different way of like planting with tears and reaping with joy and so that's kind of an interesting thing too that at least that transformation is something about what I guess a powerful thing that God does for us right is resurrection and hope and comforting us and seeing us into a new day yeah amen and and I would say the repetition and rhyming like it can be those that synonymous repetition but it also can be antithetical, right? Because we have, like, our morning has turned to dancing. The opposite is also true. And it, again, is used to strengthen its purpose. Um, and then at times, it's a whole simile or metaphor that is repeated with different words. In Psalm 42, it talks about the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I? be afraid. And then the next verse is, the Lord is my stronghold. Who shall I be afraid of? Or something really close to that. But it's full metaphors that are repeated Mm. um, to strengthen the purpose. 
As you're saying that, it made me think of Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. So is that kind of an example of just like a flushing out of one whole large simile, like over the course of the entire psalm? Yeah, and Psalm 23 is really unique for a different reason, too, because it talks about God in the third person. And then I can't remember what verse it is, but it shifts to the second person. So it goes from like, the Lord is my shepherd for your rod and staff. They comfort me. And there's something really dramatic and purposeful for moving from like some outside source of help to how God shows up in the author's life. And there's a relational connection that is just powerful. So that even that shift of uh, pronouns from third person to second person is key in Psalm 23. Wow. There's just so much to unpack. Amen. Uh, and I feel like in general, you know, people don't really preach about pastors and deacons don't necessarily always preach about the Psalms as much. Like in the Lutheran tradition, like we read them a lot during worship, but that's one of the reasons I'm so excited about this particular series is to be really be able to kind of dig in and, and spend some time with these words because they are so rich and there's so much there. Yeah, we'll talk about it later. But Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said, and many others said, that the Psalms are the prayer book of the Bible. And how I've always seen the Psalms used in worship, for instance, like we read them in worship, but we don't always preach them. But how I've experienced the Psalms in worship is that it is a catechetical moment. It's a teaching moment, right? Like we have this breadth of psalms, these prayers available to us. And by having the psalms in worship, it helps teach us as listeners the words of faith so that when something happens, we can call upon those words to to give voice to our experience. Yeah, the words are on your heart and you're ready to say them out loud or sometimes just in your heart. Sometimes you don't really have voice to even say them out loud, but you have them there. Yeah, absolutely. So before we shift to you kind of sharing a little bit more about your personal relationship with the Psalms, I I was just wondering if you could say a little bit more about the translation process. So we've already talked a little bit about how In Hebrew, it would just be one word after another, like line after line, because they didn't have room on their ancient paper to be able to like space things out the way that we do. Um, But I wonder what else might get lost when we translate from Hebrew into English. So much is the answer. (laughs) (laughs) So what are a few things that you think would be important to highlight for us to understand today? Yeah, so when I've taught Hebrew scriptures, like classes with it in it, there's always a moment where I say, and that's why we need to learn the Hebrew language, um, because it is about honoring the culture and context of the text. And then, as with any language, Taylor Swift is right. We get lost in translation. Ah, oh, Preach. For example, Hebrew is full of puns that can't be translated in the same way. I love a pun. Yeah. 
So one of my favorite puns, um, poetry puns, comes from the book of Isaiah, right? The prophet Isaiah, chapter five, verse seven. And it goes like this. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the people of Judah are his pleasant planting. And then it says, he, meaning God, they use masculine pronouns. He expected justice, but saw bloodshed. But in Hebrew, it sounds really similar, right? Justice and bloodshed are very different words in the English language. But in Hebrew, it would sound like this. He expected mishpat, but saw mishpach. Oh, they're so close. They're so close. And it's like the people could did not hear God correctly. And that's why they got it wrong. Yeah. Well, and that feels so, and, and you just like, you feel that pun, like you feel that in a way. Yeah. You, yeah. You feel that pun. And then the next line is another pun. Righteousness, but heard a cry. Righteousness and cry, very different in English, but in Hebrew, it would have been Zedekah, but heard Zedekah. Oh, yeah. It's like they got almost the letter of the law, but not the spirit. And I imagine like for translators, how you have to make a choice at a certain point, right? Because there is there may be words that you could use to use that pun, like to try to translate some of that pun over, but they may not really get, you know, to be a close enough meaning to what the word means. And it's like, what's more important, like the vocab translation, like an accurate vocabulary translation versus in poetry, like preserving this device. Like that's a really hard thing to, to balance. Yeah. And again, Hebrew poetry often rhymes ideas and not necessarily words. And so a lot of translators, and this is my understanding, and I might be wrong on it, but translators are going to go for the idea and not necessarily the rhyme because there are theological implications. Yes. Yes. Right. Righteousness is a huge churchy word. 100%. Yeah. This is fascinating. All right. So puns is one example. Are there others? Yeah. So like in English, we often have like an acrostic poem where you go A, B, C. Each line starts with a different letter of the alphabet. In Hebrew, they have the same thing. Aleph, Bet, Gimel, Dalet, you know, down through the alphabet. But there aren't always good translations. <laughs> to keep the ABC structure. And so sometimes that gets lost in the way. Um, And then Hebrew is also very good at hyperbole and onomatopoeia, which I just love that word. It's a great word. Onomatopoeia means, it means like the sound of the word is the meaning of the word. I always think of Batman when I'm trying to explain an onomatopoeia, like the old Batman um, animations where it'd be like, pow, when he like would punch someone and it's, yeah, like those sound like pow and Batman taking out the villain. Yeah, no, I love that. That's a great way to talk about it. And Hebrew is full of that. And then there's a couple key indicators in the Hebrew writing that 
those who can read Hebrew follow. Uh, for instance, oftentimes Hebrew poetry does not include the word the, it's only implied. So for instance, it would be Colleen, the brilliant and the illustrious is how we would translate it in English. But in Hebrew, it's Colleen, brilliant and illustrious. And that can be an indicator of poetry as well. And then oftentimes in Hebrew, when there's a direct object in a sentence, it has a little tag on it that indicates that it's a direct object and that gets dropped in the sentence structure. But again, that's something we just don't, it's an indicator when you're looking at the Hebrew text. But and then not. it just gets translated as the direct object in the English sentence. So you lose that little marker. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's amazing how much grammar, even knowing like English grammar is like a part of understanding biblical translation. Well, in any foreign language, right? Like I have this very vivid memory from the seventh grade in seventh or eighth grade in Spanish class. And my Spanish teacher would really only speak to us in Spanish. That was, you know, how she approached teaching. And then it became apparent at one point that we did not know what she was talking about grammatically in English. And so she like switched into English and was like, okay, like, let's talk about this in English because like everyone got this wrong on the test. And I just think you haven't learned it. (laughs) And so, yeah, like, in any language, like the grammar is so different. And so like knowing your own grammar and being able to like make sense of those differences is important when we're trying to understand one another. Absolutely right. That's yeah. Translations in any language can be hard because I'm thinking about the languages that I've learned. And when, like you said, my teachers have said, I don't know how to translate this for you. This is a very Spanish or very German or, you know, just very whatever language idea that has no equivalent. Yeah. Right. Like how many times do we not, we English speakers not understand the depth of namaste, but Mm -hmm. we've used it and appropriated it. And there's just things that get lost when we say it or when we, when we read it. And it's not to anybody's detriment. This is like why study and engagement and wrestling with scriptures is so important because it does speak truths that uh, we get to wrestle with. And that actually leads us in so well to our last question for today, because there is on the one hand, this very academic approach to making sense of poetry and understanding the devices and the translation and the different vocabulary. And we could talk about that for like hours longer. But at the same time, we're coming to these words as people of faith, that they are part of our holy tradition and how we experience God. And, you know, some people are going to write papers about the grammar and all these types of things. Um, but more often than not, like the average Christian is coming to them, these words in worship and Bible study or our own personal prayer time. Um, so you've shared so much of that academic knowledge with us. And I also was wondering, what are some of the ways that we can interact from the faith perspective and then you know, transition that into how you interact with the Psalms and biblical poetry from your faith? Thank you for this question. Sometimes I think we 
scriptures are held at a distance because we're afraid to engage with them, Mm. that we don't know enough, that we have to be able to write academic papers, which as people know me, I love that stuff. I can dig into grammar and, and words, but for me, faith is something that is alive and something to wrestle with. And so I really appreciated how you have framed this series that God is with us however we are, because Jesus was in many of the same feelings, however we are as well. It's absolutely true and key. And I think we often forget then that it is the Psalms and the prophets and the Hebrew scriptures that Jesus turned to to give voice to his experience. Oh, of course. Like, yeah, I've thought about that with like his teaching and like quoting things to talk about, like fulfilling prophecies. But this is such a beautiful point that you're making about like his own faith and his experience. Yeah, it goes from his leadership, right? In the beginning of Luke, when Jesus outlines what his ministry will will be, he turns to Isaiah 61, mm. a, po- a section of poetry about bringing release to the captive, sight to the blind, and, and so much more. So there's those moments. And, and scripture, Hebrew scriptures, led him to that. But it's also about those experiences or those feelings around what was going on around him. One really uh, profound example, for instance, is Psalm 22. When Jesus is on the cross, he cites Psalm 22, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? These are the words that he used that gave voice to his experience. And I think it's a real gift that we have those same words available to us to give voice for however we are as well. I have goosebumps, like as you're talking about that, that like Jesus knew Jesus did not have a scroll like with him, obviously on the cross, like he knew these words, like they were on his heart and like Jesus joining his voice with the, th- with the psalmist who wrote those words, you know, hundreds of years before Jesus lived. And then, you know, with the, countless people across time and around the world who have also said those words, like including myself of like, why have you forsaken me? One thing that we haven't even been able to talk about with particularly the Psalms is that they're often classified into different categories. There's often Thanksgiving Psalms, praise Psalms, and then community and individual lament Psalms. Add in all the other poetry in Hebrew scriptures, and it's a lot, right? But I think for me, it's that it's for me, for you, for y'all, for the community. Yeah. It, it, it follows the breadth of what our world looks like. And it, poetry covers the good, the bad, the ordinary, and the extraordinary. When we don't have the words, which for me is often... It gives voice for the whole of life. And if we're ever scared that we aren't going to have the quote-unquote faithful words, we have a resource available for us. Yeah, 
The Psalms, I mean, I love that Psalm. The Psalms definitely cover all of that. And there is so much biblical poetry beyond the Psalms as well. And so the and so one of the hopes of of the series then is going to be each week folks are going to share a different portion of that poetry that is meaningful to them. So I'm hoping that by by the end we won't have seen of course everything, but we will have seen some snippets and and some diversity of this poetry that's out there. So Emily, what are yours? Like what are your verses of poetry? from the Hebrew scriptures that speak to your experience that are written on your heart? So many. I love it, of course. (laughs) So what are the few you want to share today? It's hard to narrow it down, but I think for me, kind of two have arisen, um, at least today. The first is the song of Miriam in the book of Exodus, because it is possibly the oldest segment of text to not only describe the Exodus, but also to be codified in scripture. Oh, I don't think I knew that. Or if I knew it, I forgot it. I'm so happy to know this. Yeah. And I think for me, it's that it is the words of a woman from the very beginning that is liberative as a woman in ministry, that our voices have always carried the story. Mm. And that propels my own telling of our stories of faith. And then it's poetry and song, and songs always carry us through. And so I think for me, that is one that you, we often talk about the women at the tomb and that women were the first apostles. We did that here for Easter. That's all we did was women voices at APT. It's so true. And those women follow the example of Hannah and Miriam and so many in Hebrew scriptures who carried the story. Yeah. And on the off chance that people don't know who Miriam is, just really quick, Miriam is the older sister to Moses, uh, Moses being the one who uh, God, God, well, God really kind of chose their whole family. They have another brother named Aaron as well. So God used this family um, to help free the people, the Hebrew people from slavery in Egypt. And it's the whole book of Exodus is the story of this. This is my sassy comment. I'm here for it. I also want to name that in Exodus 15 and the Song of Miriam, there is a lot of debate whether it's the Song of Miriam or the Song of Moses. And a lot of scholars of whom I agree with have determined that it probably was Miriam's song. And then later they changed it to be the Song of Moses because patriarchy. Well, and that's just odd too, because I think about like one of the things that we hear Moses say in scripture or scripture tells us that Moses said, perhaps this is a better way to say it, that he wasn't actually good with words, which is why he needed his brother Aaron. So it's kind of interesting that one of his self-professed insecurities is being bad for words, but here, bad with words. And then here's this uh, huge song. So Interesting. Interesting. Mm. Well, you said that there were two examples. So what is the second one that you'd like to share with us today? 
Yeah. My second story is one that kind of alluded to before. When I was in high school, I, like many others, did not have a use for the church in my life. Yeah. And at one point, um, a tragedy hit my hometown. And I think it's important to note my hometown was about 600 people. So we are very invested in each other's lives. And the tragedy was that a car accident killed three of my classmates and severely injured another. Mm. Our whole community, including myself, was reeling. And I literally, at that point, did not know where else to turn, trying to make sense of what happened. And so I went to church for the first time in a very long time. And not two months later, it was Monday, Thursday, this where we read the story of Jesus's crucifixion and, and the Last Supper leading up to that. And it was the first time I ever remember attending a Monday, Thursday service in my life. I probably had before because I grew up in the church, but I didn't remember it. And there's a point in many of our Monday, Thursday services where we strip the altar, where we take down all of the fabrics and religious symbols in front of the worshiping space. It's an act to represent the abandon or the death of Jesus. And there's this tradition that they read Psalm 22. The one where Jesus quotes, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken or why have you abandoned me? And for me in that moment, it was so real because that's the way I felt. I lost my friends and my community was hurting. And in Psalm 22, it talks about feeling like your body is just out of joint and your heart is like wax melted within your chest. And it then makes this demand of God, do not be far from me. And like lament psalms do, Psalm 22 shifts to how God responds in those moments. It says, for God did not despise or abhor the affliction of the afflicted. God did not hide God's face from me, but heard when I cried. And honestly, it named that we go through hard times. We do hard things. And as much as it feels like God has turned a back to us, God hears. And it was this like beautiful, magical, Holy Spirit filled moment because it was there I realized I just needed to know God heard it and felt it. I didn't need answers. I just needed to know God was there. And so as a pastor, as a leader in the church, every year when I read Psalm 22, on Monday, Thursday, I'm reminded of that hope because I know God has already been there with me. Everything that we have and will go through matters to God, however we are, even though, and perhaps mostly, 
when we can't feel that presence. There's so much power in what you share there with that reflection on Psalm 22, that that shift from, well, I guess perhaps not shift, but like the inclusion of your grief, your lament with your whole community and and that coming to the understanding of that God is with you in that and God sees that. And I th- just think that that is something that is so important to the world right now on a lot of different levels. There are a lot of really hard things happening in our world right now, and we don't have time to get into all of that. But however we are feeling about them, whether we are lamenting or angry or maybe feeling hopeful, like in all of that, like God hears our our cries of whatever those cries are. And I think for me, I didn't have the words in that moment to describe how I felt. I was in the thick of a community trauma and scripture gave me the words to process. And I agree with you. There is a lot going on in this world that I don't always know how to give voice to the experience. And so I know in my own life, that is often when I turn to scripture because God's people have been through a lot. Mm -hmm. And there's something beautiful about knowing that God's with you. And like you said, the community of the faithful from all generations are with you. From all places, too. From all places, from all times, yeah. Yeah. We are not alone in this. Well, I thank you so much, Emily, for being with us today so that we were not alone as we were beginning our exploration of of Hebrew poetry and how God is with us however you are. However you are, however we are, however I am, all of those things. So thank you for sharing both your academic gifts and intellect with us and also sharing your heart with us as well. It has been such a gift. Thank you for having me. It has been a pleasure. And thank you for hearing my stories and letting me be a little bit of a nerd with my Hebrew. Nerds are always welcome at All Places Together. Prayer for the Howevers of our lives. Holy God, she who sees. Over the course of millennia, you have remained steadfast to your creation, including people. Our lives are marked with incredible highs when we see our place in the world and rejoice at peace around us. Our lives are also marked with life-altering lows when we may not even be able to find the words to describe our pain. There are also countless experiences between and beyond the highs and lows, and though it may not always feel like it, 
We trust that you see us and are with us in all of these howevers. Our forebears in faith have handed down their poetry to us. We hear their voices and their prayers and we join with them. Thank you for this gift as a way to remember your steadfastness, to give voice to our deepest anguish, to celebrate your unending mercy, and to remind us of our connection to each other and to you. May we always remember your love for us throughout the howevers of our lives. Amen. Thank you for joining us at All Places Together. If you heard yourself or someone you know in these stories today, we hope that you heard God too. Thank you to Micah, Kayla, Danielle, Liz, Allie, Laura, Kayla, and Joanne for your orders from the All Places Together first year anniversary. If you haven't already gotten your items yet, they should be on their way to you soon. I can't wait to see you celebrating God's love for all people and creatures with your t-shirts, bandanas, magnets, notebooks, and stickers. If you've been waiting to order, don't miss your chance. The store will close at the end of May. And don't forget, in addition to sharing God's love with the world, this sale is helping to support APT to launch a private social network. This network will help our community develop and grow in our relationships with one another and with God. If you would like to help support this goal directly without making a purchase, you can share a financial gift through our website. Just scroll to the bottom where it says Give to All Places Together and click that button. You'll be redirected to our giving platform from there. As always, thanks to our mission partners, the Virginia Synod, the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, and supporters like you who have already shared gifts with All Places Together. I also want to do a quick thank you to Carrie for her financial gift for APT to become a sponsor for this summer's Young Clergy Women International Conference. YCWI, as it is called for short, is a professional organization for women, both cis and trans, clergy who are under 40 years old. I'm so thankful for APT to be represented at this conference, as the group itself has been such a source of inspiration and education for me. We know that it can be hard to give financially. We celebrate all of the ways that you share the stories of all places together with the people in your life and engage with us online throughout the week. This past week, I asked how y'all have heard God's love for you through the podcast. Trista shared that There Is Still Time, episode 27, was particularly powerful for her. She heard in it the reminder that she can still do things that she has never done or even thought possible. It helped motivate her to pursue her now official ADHD diagnosis and to get back into therapy. Trista, thank you for sharing how much that episode has meant to you and for showing up for yourself in big and important ways. Yes, there is still so much potential out there for you, for me, for all of us. No matter our age or situation, there is still time to grow as a person 
experience more wholeness in the world and experience and share love. If other episodes have been important to you, I'd love to hear about that. You can share with me on social media through a private message or through email. All places together at gmail.com. That's A-L-L-P-L-A-C-E-S-T-O-G-E-T-H-E-R at gmail.com. Until next time, remember that God loves you wherever, whoever, and however you are.